You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. with you all tonight. Um, We're going to be reading from the Gospel of John. It's the fourth chapter in the New Testament. If you'd like to turn there, there are Bibles in front of you, or if you want to use your phone or your own Bible. John 5, verses 1 through 20. Please rise if you're able for the reading of God's Word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but one what he sees the father but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will and i read an extra verse um, this is the word of god for the people of god
All right, good evening. Um, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we're glad you're here. Um, we're looking at the Gospel of John, and in particular, we're looking at uh, specific encounters that um, people have with uh, the beloved Son of the Father, um, with Jesus Christ, and how the beloved Son brings eternal life um, into uh, individuals like the woman at the well last week, this woman who was a Samaritan, an outcast that nobody cared about. Suddenly, uh, the Son of God comes and uh, pursues her. Uh, he's on a mission to have her and bring her into the life that he has with his Father and the Spirit. And that's what eternal life is. Um, it's a very famous word um, from John 3.16, you know, uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and would not perish. And what we don't think about enough is eternal life is a relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we get pulled into. And so this paralyzed man in this passage, uh, he was unsuspecting. He had no idea what was about to happen to him. But suddenly, not only is he going to be healed, but by the end of this, um, he's going to be brought into the eternal life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a relationship. We've always got to remember that it's not about rules. Uh, religion is not about um, doing X, Y, and Z. It is about this profound relationship with the creator of the universe, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so... Basically, Jesus is calling this man from this pagan shrine of Bethesda, created by the, the Greeks um, and the Romans, this pagan, uh, you know, superstitious shrine, uh, to the temple, his home, the true home of, of the children of God is the temple of God. And Jesus uh, basically draws this guy from this pagan shrine into the temple, and he welcomes back in. Uh, this man, uh, this, this lost sheep, as a brother to him, as a true son of the Father. Um, in John 14, 23, Jesus says, If you love me, then my Father and I will come and we will make our home with you. So um, it's always about being brought into the life, like a tornado just being drawn up higher and higher into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And eternal life is, is here tonight at this table, where that's where the Father uh, welcomes us uh, into the heart of his house, his home, uh, and he says, I want to give you uh, the life that I have with my son. The amount of love between me and my son, uh, I want you to have that. That's what, that's what this whole worship service is bringing us to when we come up here and receive him at this table. And um, I want to contrast the, the Bethesda, the house of rules, the house of human religion, man-made religion, uh, where you have to do all these things, the angel has to stir the waters, or we have to keep the Sabbath perfectly to be acceptable to God. That's the rules, games, uh, you know, the, the false uh, religion of the world. Uh, that's what humans always come up with, stuff like the Pool of Bethesda. And I want to look at how that is in contrast to the temple, which is where Jesus eventually brings this man and brings all of his grace into this man's life. So first of all, the, the house of rules. Verse 2, there is a pool in Jerusalem called Beit Hesed, that's Hebrew for uh, the house, Beit. Uh, Hesed is the most important uh, Jewish word for God's uh, faithful love, his loving kindness, um, his loyalty, his steadfastness. It's probably the most important word for God in the Old Testament is Hesed. And so uh, this is a mockery of what the house of Hesed is supposed to be. Uh, they have labeled this pagan shrine with a pool in it as the house of Beth, Beth, uh, 
Beit Hesed. And um, just on an archaeological note, in case you uh, wonder whether the Bible is actually uh, historical or just a bunch of fairy tales, they thought in the uh, late 1800s, uh, scholars thought, um, well, we haven't found the pool of Bethesda, and so it's obviously something that John has made up, and so he didn't really know about the geography of Jerusalem. And so a lot of scholars dismissed John as someone who didn't know anything about this era. So they thought he wrote it much later and made a lot of these details up. But then in 1890, uh, they found the pool of Bethesda. And now it's one of the, the strongest witnesses to the, uh, the historicity of the Gospel of John. John is an excellent historian. And uh, we found this thing. It's, it was built by the Greeks uh, to the god... Uh, Asclepios, the god of uh, healing. So if you go to a doctor, a lot of times you see that uh, the snake on the pole, uh, that's Asclepius, the god of healing. And uh, it was a cult. It was a cult to this Greek god, and it was defined by a serpent. And so when the archaeologists found the pool of Bethesda, it had these two stone serpents, which is why we know it was a pagan shrine. Um, and inside of this house of healing, it was uh, massive. It was this Olympic-sized pool, actually split in half by porticos. Uh, and each of these have these you know, Roman columns. So if you look at the front of the Rinalda house, if you know that, those kind of columns. Imagine five rows of those around like uh, a Pentagon, an Olympic-sized pool. It was massive. It was like um, apparently 40 feet deep. It was really, really deep. So that's, imagine that, and all these people who are around that are sick. You have that the house of healing, um, and supposedly there was a god uh, or an angel, you know, that word can be used for God or uh, heavenly being, but there's this thing in the pool that occasionally will come down and stir up the waters. Nobody quite knows when, um, nobody quite knows what's going on there, but way down deep in this pool, uh, it was, which might have been a spring, it might have been a natural spring, so there might have been bubbles that would come up every now and then, but the, the superstition was... Uh, that when that stuff happened, then suddenly the waters would become healing. They would have all these healing properties, and the first person that gets in the pool is healed. Not the second person, just the first person. And so it's kind of like, when I heard about this story when I first became a Christian, I thought, oh, this is a beautiful thing, this pool that heals people, and uh, it's called the House of Grace, the House of Hesed, so this must be a good thing. Well, the more I've studied it, the more this is a horrific thing. This is a pagan deity, and that it's a very sick joke to have like this competition where the first person to get in the pool wins, and all of these people who can't really walk are trying to crawl all over each other to get down into the water. I mean, if you think about that, that's incredibly cruel. And it's very typical of the Greek gods. They're very capricious. Uh, they're very fickle. They toy with us. They mess with us. They play games with us. That's not what God is like. God is the opposite of that. Um, Jesus comes, and he comes into Bethesda. And I mentioned this last week um, with the woman at the well, but it's kind of like Ethan Hunt. You know, your mission is uh, Bethesda should you choose to accept it. So he has this target, and he's looking for this person. Like the father has told the son, go to the pool of Bethesda, and there will be a man there, and there's one man there, and that's the one that you need to approach. Uh, it says that in verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there, and he's like, Father, is this the man? Okay, this is the man. Let's do this. So he was, 
um, on a mission for that man. He pursued that man from the very beginning. And this man had been paralyzed 38 years. We don't know for sure that he was paralyzed, but I would guess he was. Um, probably as a teenager, he had some kind of accident where he fell and he broke his neck and he became paralyzed. And back then, you were, there was no system that would help you out. You were just sprawled out in your own mess. No bathroom, no AC, no vending machine for food, no water. He was entirely the mercy of people. And he's just sitting there in this hot, you know, Olympic-sized outdoor pool with the sun beating down on him. And um, he has almost no hope, which is why I think Jesus went to him, because he's the one that is most in need. Jesus loves those who are poor in spirit, those who are needy, uh, those who are lost, those who are lonely. That's why he came to this world. Uh, and so he comes to this man and he asks a very interesting question, which you might think is a dumb question. He says, do you want to be healed? And uh, you think, well, of course he wants to be healed. He's been there 38 years. Why would he ask that question? And you would also think that the guy would just suddenly say, of course I want to be healed. What do you think I'm doing here? Um, but that's not what the guy says, which is a very important part of the story. The guy does not say yes or um, of course. He says in verse 7, nobody ever puts me in the pool. They just keep running in front of me. And so uh, not that I blame this guy. I don't blame him. But he is stuck in this mindset of helplessness that uh, he really um, feels at this point in his life like he has no ownership or agency at all in his life. And uh, it's very easy to get stuck into that mentality of I'm just a cog in the wheel of a machine. I'm just a victim of circumstance like this passivity. And Jesus doesn't blame him. He doesn't blame him. In fact, uh, he doesn't even react to the man's complaint. You know, the guy's complaining. Instead of just saying, yes, I want to be healed, he's complaining. Jesus doesn't even respond to that complaint. He simply goes under the man, and he gives him these three imperatives, uh, three commands that are like these three strokes you know, of a lightsaber just vroom, 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 that slices through all of the paganism all of the house of games and the rules that this man has lived with his whole life, he says, get up, take your mat, and walk. And then it says the guy got up, and he took his mat, and he walked. Because this is now the creator. This is not a pagan deity. This is not some god of healing. This is the creator of the universe who's come down, and whatever he says happens. And so all the man's nerve endings, uh, the tissues, the muscles, they are immediately regenerated. Uh, there's no surgery. There's no physical therapy. There's no angel bubbling up in the water. It just says in verse 9, at once, immediately, the man took up his bed and walked. Which, if you can imagine being there and these people who knew this man watching that happen, I mean, religion makes you jump through hoops. And they say things like, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed. You might not know about that strand of Christianity, but there is a lot of Christianity that says, if you have enough faith, then you'll get healed, which is kind of like this pool of Bethesda thing, these games that we play. Jesus comes up and says, without any requirement, I heal you just because I heal you. I love you. There's no, the guy doesn't even believe. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And yet, uh, he, Jesus freely and graciously and quietly, with no need for attention at all, he does it secretly from afar. He like heals him and he gets out of there because he's not requiring any attention at all, but he ends this 38-year-old nightmare for this guy. And you can imagine the guy getting up, uh, checking out his legs, like making sure that they work, 
and then testing him out if he can like walk and then if he can run and he starts jumping and leaping and I can imagine him dancing but just the joy and all the people around him are hugging him and uh, weeping and cheering for him except for one group. There's one group that has um, no emotional reaction at all. They're so, they're so inhumane that the first thing they think about when they see this man is they say, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. And they publicly shame him, verse 10. And there's only one group in the world that could ever be that hard-hearted and cold, and that is religious experts. That's a very scary thing about being a pastor is that um, consistently in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, the scariest people are the religious leaders. And so these people have been so hardened by religion and legalism and making rules that when they see this person, they have no compassion for that person, but instead they go right to the rules. And um, they basically turn the gift of the Sabbath, which was about rest and restoration, and they take this beautiful thing that God gave the Jewish people, which is that every week you get one day off. It's a gift. It's one of the greatest gifts. It's the Sabbath gift, Shabbat. And it was very distinctive of the Jews. And they have taken this beautiful gift of rest and restoration, and they have turned it into Big Brother. And now they're going around and they're checking on who is, who is not resting. So it is called the Mishnah, which is what uh, the Jewish leaders had come up with at this point. In history, and they had added all of these rules to God's law. So God does give laws in the Old Testament, like the Sabbath law. But then at this point in the history of, of Judaism, they had added dozens of rules to the Torah that are forbid all sorts of things. Like one of the rules in the Mishnah was you were forbidden from carrying empty beds on the Sabbath. There were 39 other things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, but that was one. You could not carry an empty bed. And when these religious experts see this man, that's all they think about. They go right to legalism. And it basically takes God's beautiful law that says you, you should get a lot of rest. You need to not make your workers work all the time. And uh, it uses that to police people. Like, don't you dare eat out on a Sunday. Or don't have too much fun on a Sunday. Or don't enjoy yourself. Um, it, it, we always are taking these beautiful things God has given us and making laws into them. And I think that legalism is actually worse than the paganism because it masquerades as righteous. I think about Dolores Umbridge, if you know the Harry Potter books, where Dolores Umbridge, she seems very upright. She seems like she's law-abiding and rule-keeping. But she turns Hogwarts uh, from this wonderful place of fun and joy into a police state. And there's all these rules. Everybody's walking on eggshells, looking over their shoulder. And that's what religion does. Uh, to God, is they, they take this wonderful thing and they make all these rules. And one great example of that is purity culture. And some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't live through purity culture, but apparently it was a big deal in churches, you know, about 10, 15 years ago. And it somewhat still exists. But what the purity culture does is it takes God's beautiful vision for sexuality, which is a covenant between a man and a woman. That's where sexuality is best expressed. That's where we are that's where we're created to experience sexuality well and to flourish and grow. And it takes that beautiful idea, that law of God, and it turns it into this long list of rules, which are usually enforced with shame and usually punish women way more than men. They all, always let the men off the hook and they always are making the rules for the women. But you, know, you can't date was one of those rules. You couldn't date, uh, you can't wear certain clothes. Oftentimes you couldn't kiss or hold hands, which is all of these laws 
And purity culture took this gorgeous vision of God and turned it into a bunch of rules. And none of this comes from the love of God. It doesn't come from loving God. It comes from a fear of losing control. And, and generally, uh, purity culture came from parents being terrified that their kids were going to start sleeping with each other. And so you make all these rules. And they would say, we're just trying to make sure our kids aren't tempted by these things. But the rules do not do the trick. They are not what change our behavior. Rules never change our behavior. External behavior is not even what God cares about. He cares about your heart and what you love and what you want to do and what you enjoy doing. And he wants you to stop enjoying these sinful things and enjoy him and enjoy grace and enjoy life. So that's the house of rules, the house of religion, the house of games that uh, religious experts make. And now compare that uh, to the grace of Christ, which we've already seen that because he already came out of nowhere and he just healed the guy out of, for no apparent reason at all, just out of love. And now the scribes, uh, the religious leaders come and they attack the man and they say, you know, how, who, how did, who did this to you? Or like, how dare you carry this mat? And, uh, and you notice that when they say that to him, look at his reaction in verse 11. Again, you see the passivity. The guy, the guy um, does not take ownership for his life. He does, not, he does not have agency. He does not feel like he has agency. And so he basically says, oh yeah, this some guy who I don't know it was, he came out of nowhere and all of a sudden I was just, my body flew up in the air and I was walking. So he takes absolutely no responsibility. He throws Jesus under the bus completely. And Jesus is watching all this from afar. And he sees all of it. It says he was standing off watching the man. And then in verse 14, it says, after this, Jesus found him again. And grace always keeps coming for us. Even though Jesus saw this guy basically just um, give, hand him over to the authorities, um, he finds him again in the temple in his true home, and he does not blame him. Once again, he does not blame him, but he encourages him in his progress. And life with Jesus is always a process. Okay? You never are fully there. You're always growing. But I love that Jesus comes over and he claps him on the shoulder. In verse 14, he says, look, look at you. You're well. And it's like he's saying, uh, you're now a true son of Adam. Uh, now your dominion has been restored. Uh, you're, an, you're an imago dei. Not that he wasn't at all before, but his, the fullness of the image of God has been restored in him. And, and then the fact that he's come to the temple, Jesus is commending him for coming back to the temple and offering sacrifices like he's supposed to do. When you're healed, you're supposed to go to the temple and give thanks and show that you are now healed. And the priest looks at you and, and they give thanks to God. And so Jesus encourages the man. Uh, he basically tells him, you are full, you are healed, you're whole, uh, you're strong, you're a new person in me, new creation in Christ. But he also... Uh, because of his love for this man, he, he warns him. And he says to him in verse 14, uh, be careful that uh, you don't continue this pattern of behavior, of passivity. Uh, sin no more that nothing worse happens. And the nothing worse would be that you totally deny me, that you keep just throwing me under the bus and not taking any ownership for your life and not having any responsibility for your life. So Jesus is imploring him, be an ally for me. You know, stand with me. Tell them that you're on my side. Like, you know, uh, stand up for me. And um, what does the guy do in verse 15? Uh, he went away and he turned Jesus in again. And he says, I found the guy that you're looking for and, and his name's Jesus. 
So once again, uh, this man uh, completely fails. He, uh, he, will not, um, he will not stand with Jesus. He, we often do this. We will um, distance ourselves from Jesus to protect ourselves. Like, I totally get this kind of move. I hate this about myself. Um, just passivity and fear and not willing to really stand for Christ and stand with Christ and say publicly that he has healed me, that he has redeemed me. Like, this guy should have said to those religious experts, yeah, I know Jesus. He healed me. He changed my life. He is my deepest love. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my King. And, and instead of that, he just turns him in and says, I found the guy you're looking for, partly to protect himself. But again, once again, um, and I'm hoping this time the man changed. You know, we don't know for sure. Uh, John leaves us hanging. But I want to say that the Lord of grace, again, he comes back as the guy is denying him, as the guy is betraying him. And Jesus walks over in the midst of that conversation when he's turning Jesus in and he puts his shoulder around the guy and he takes the hit. And he takes all of the anger of the religious experts on himself. And he says, um, verse 17, my father is always working and so I am always working. In other words, not only did I heal this guy on the Sabbath, I can do anything I want on the Sabbath because I own the Sabbath because I am the son of the father who created the Sabbath. And so all of, the, all of the potential anger that those religious experts had towards that guy is now completely on Jesus. He takes all of the blame. And uh, not only that, he calls himself God. And so from that point on in the Gospel of John, they're trying to kill him. And, and um, that's, that's the greatest claim of Christianity, that, uh, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, that he is equal to the father. And Jesus says, um, not only have I healed this guy, but I'm going to do greater works than that. In verse 20, he says, we're about to do greater works than even these. My father and I are going to do much, much more than heal this man. We're going to, I am going, he's going to give me up to be crucified, and I will gladly be crucified. And me and the father have created this plan where I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be resurrected, and I'm going to do all that to bring uh, life to you. To, to even the religious experts, to the man. Uh, when I first met my wife, uh, Margie, um, she took me to her grandmother's house in North Carolina, in a little town in North Carolina. And we had, I think it was a, a dinner there. Um, it might have been Christmas Eve. We had a dinner there in this, my, her grandmother's house in North Carolina, a little town near Raleigh. And um, it was very formal. Dress was formal. Uh, you don't touch your antiques. You could tell you, you don't touch stuff in that house. Uh, elbows off the table. You sit up straight. You know, the knives and the forks were all perfectly arranged. And this was a wonderful woman, but you didn't feel very comfortable in that place. Um, and then later, um, Margie took me to her other side of the family. They live in Florida. And um, this was her mom's side of the family. And down there in Florida, uh, we got like in a pickup truck in the back of a pickup truck. And uh, we were wearing shorts, your feet up on the couch, you know, these big, plush, old couches that were really worn out. You ate however you liked, whenever you liked, in whatever posture you liked. And a lot of times we come to church and we think, and kids especially, uh, can think that the church is a place of rules. It's like North Carolina. You know, it's a place where you've got to be, mind your P's and Q's, be on your best behavior. Uh, you've got to look right here and have everything um, looking good. And when really uh, God says, my house is a house of grace, 
Uh, and not that you should be a slob or something like that, but it's not a house of rules. It's like Florida, but it's better than Florida. Um, because in the house of God, um, he invites us to this table. At the center of his house is like this table. And it's, and it's not just kind of uh, you do you or uh, no rules, just right. You know, it's, it's actually uh, there, there. God is a holy, pure, just God. And yet we are invited as sinful people into his presence at this table every week. Uh, we get to come up here and enjoy uh, his presence every single week. No matter what we've done, just like this guy, this, uh, this paralyzed man, no matter uh, how many times we deny him, uh, though we deny him, he does not deny us. When we are faithless, he is faithful. And so even on the night that he was betrayed, which makes this table such a table of grace, on that night that he was betrayed, it was not the night that we were on our best behavior. Uh, it was not uh, the night that people uh, were praising Jesus, Hosanna, uh, glory to God in the highest. It was actually the night where humanity was at its very worst. And on that night, uh, our Lord took bread, which represented his body, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim uh, my death until I come again. So all over the world today, in every country in the world, people have been celebrating this table, which is so encouraging. That, and it's spreading around the world. This house of grace is growing larger and larger. And people for 2,000 years have been doing this. And they have been gathering around a table of grace. You know, it's really hard to make this table into a legal thing. It's really hard to take this and make it into legalism because it's just so uh, destructive to legalism. So um, I'm going to pray for us as we come and receive this table and ask God to make sure that we experience it in a gracious way. And as I'm praying, if those who are serving with me, y'all can just go ahead and come over here um, to my left. The people are going to serve with me. And then um, after I pray, I'll give instructions uh, for y'all about how we're going to do this. So, Father, please um, show us tonight as we take this meal uh, how deeply loved we are. What a glorious uh, person your son is. Uh, Father, draw us up into eternal life tonight. Help us to once again experience you as the, uh, the all-loving, all-giving, all-generous Father, uh, a, a holy Father, a furious love that hates sin, um, a furious love that hates injustice, and yet also welcomes sinners at this table. Um, help us to experience you tonight in that way, the, the gift of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So um, the way we do this, the last couple of weeks we're trying to thank Remember, we love these rascals.